So I want to talk a little bit about who Asaph is before we jump into Psalm 73. He was a Levite. He was a priest who served during the time of David. And so David was the king. He was a king who loved God. He relocated the tabernacle there to Jerusalem. He set it up on a permanent basis. Now, David had a desire to build a permanent temple that God told him that he could not do. And so one of his sons did. But David made a lot of provisions for it. So for David, the worship of God in Jerusalem with all the people drawing near to God was very important. And so one of the things he does is he commissions Asaph, who's a musician. And his job is essentially to minister before God. He's in the presence of God's glory and then to write songs as the Holy Spirit inspires them for the people to use in worship. So Asaph is, in a sense, the worship pastor of all of Israel. He writes songs or psalms to prophesy with musical accompaniment. In First Chronicles chapter 25, we find the story of David commissioning Asaph towards this ministry. Chapter 25, verse 1 of First Chronicles. It says, David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Heman and Judah, for the ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. And then it gives this list of all these sons of Asaph that would serve in that ministry. In 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 16, we also find a story of this commissioning where, where Asaph was the chief of these musicians who were to minister before the Lord. And as the Holy Spirit inspired them, they were to write songs or psalms to musically, musical accompaniment that then the people would use in worship. And so that's Asaph's job. He resides primarily at the temple and writes these psalms. There's 16 psalms in the book here that, that run in succession that are attributed to Asaph. Some people say that it's maybe Asaph himself, maybe one of his sons at a later date. We don't know for sure, but they essentially all had the same job which was to write these songs as the Holy Spirit inspired for use in worship to proclaim the goodness and greatness of God. All that is to say that Asaph is not a casual believer. He's not uh, just a guy who goes to, to the tabernacle occasionally and does the minimum requirements of the law. He's all in. He's a leader within the people of Israel drawing them to God. And even he struggles with this doubt. He received revelation from God. He was a prophet and a musician with the heart to lead people into close and intimate worship with God. And so he begins Psalm 73. It's actually the first of the Psalms attributed to Asaph. And this is what he says in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so he begins with a proclamation of who he believes God to be, who he has known God to be. And he says, look, God is good to his people. To those who are pure in heart. And to say that God is good to His people is to say something of God's character, but also His activity. So to say God is good in nature is one thing, but to say that God is good to His people indicates that over time and over history, He has done good things for His people. And so even in that simple phrase, He proclaims these two truths about God, that He is both good and great, that He has a kind intention and the capacity to carry it out. So God has been good to His people, coming from a kind intention and the power and the strength to enact His will. 
God is faithful to His promise. He defends the pure in heart. He pleads their case. But even in this first phrase, I begin to see glimpses of someone who has has been wrestling with their faith. Have you ever walked into an experience with someone and they just did something entirely out of character and you didn't understand it and you'd say, surely they meant something else. Like, surely that's, that's not it. There's almost a question in that statement. And as we read Psalm 73, I think this kind of reading that surely to be something that he's reminding himself of as he goes through questioning it. Let's look at verse 2. After telling us what he believes to be true about God, he begins to tell us what his experience was. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So he says, look, surely God is good. Surely he's good to his people. Surely he pleads the case of the righteous. He protects those who are pure in heart. But as far as as me, I almost lost it. I almost lost my step. I almost forgot. So what did he almost slip from? Well, it's the proclamation he made the verse before. Where he says God is good. He has been good to his people. He protects those who are pure in heart. He says, but as for me, I almost lost sight of that. I almost stumbled from that footing. And so he began to doubt. He began to doubt that God was good and that he was powerful enough to carry out his kind intention, and he wrestled with that. Then he goes on to describe what caused that, what experience led him to this almost slipping, and that begins in verse 3. So he says, I almost slipped because this is what I saw. He said, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from all the burdens of common man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Their callous heart, from their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice and arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, and they increase in wealth. So here's what Asap says. He said, I looked around, and I saw a lot of people who cared nothing for God. People who were violent and wicked. People who oppressed the poor. And their lives seemed pretty easy. Like, things went really well for them. He says, I I see the wicked living a life of ease in the lap of luxury. I see the ungodly prosper. I see the arrogant and proud live in health and ease while the humble suffer. They reject God. They threaten men. He says they clothe themselves in arrogance and violence. They live in violence and vanity. And yet, the crowds follow them. And I was envious. I wish I had what they had. And so he, he goes through this where he, he looks at himself and he says, you know, I'm a decent guy. I, I serve the Lord. I write songs for the people to worship to. And, and then I look at the wicked. And you know, it looks like their life is better. 
It looks like these people who rip other people off, who have no care for God, no ethics, no sense of morals, no desire to worship God, their lives seem to go pretty well. And the people I look at who honor God tend to suffer. While these other folks, they're healthy and happy. Their wealth is increasing. And, and, and here's the thing. He says, look, I was jealous of them. I wanted what they had. I wish that my life was like theirs. I wish that people looked to me. I wish that my prosperity increased. I wished that my life was easy and healthy and happy. He said, I was envious of them. I wanted to have what they had. And I didn't. And I thought it was God's fault. Because I'm a good guy. I mean, if God's going to give those blessings to anyone, it should be me. I mean, I write songs for the people to worship to. Like, my soundtrack is in the Bible. Time life can't touch what I've done here. And where's my royalty check? Bible's the best-selling book in the history of the world. ASAP's never gotten a royalty check. The wealthy, they were doing great. They were evil, and they tended to prosper. And he said, I don't get this at all. And because of it, he says he started to doubt God. He, he restates the doubt again in verse 13. He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued and I have been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. So this is what he says. He goes, yeah, I looked around and I saw that. And then I began to think, maybe... Maybe all these things I've tried to do, these ways I've tried to honor God, maybe they were pointless. Maybe following God isn't worth it. Maybe I should just stop this nonsense of trying to live rightly before God and go get what I want, have it now, and enjoy life. Maybe that's what I should do. And so this is a guy really wrestling with, with God's goodness or his willingness to bless his people. He says, I've sought after you and it's been pointless. I seek after God and it always ends badly. And he says, look, if I had written that down in a song, I would have betrayed your people. I would have led them astray. He says, when I tried to figure this out, when I, when I sat down to sort through what I saw, he said, this was oppressive to me. The Hebrew word is more than simply oppressive. It says, it, literal translation would be that it caused great anguish. It's got this kind of intestinal meaning to it. This is basically my stomach was in knots. This thing was giving me ulcers. I couldn't sleep at night trying to make sense of this. It deflated me, depressed me, and caused me great pain. Because I couldn't sort this thing out. I couldn't understand why the righteous seemed to struggle and the wicked had seemed to prosper and it didn't work for me. He says that if I had written a song that day... For worship in the temple, it would have been trash and I would have led the people astray because what was in my heart was not good. Here's a guy who's wrestling at his core with who God is. Now, again, this isn't some average dude that's just maybe gone to temple a few times. 
This is a guy whose job it is to serve before the presence of God's glory, to receive prophecy from God, to deliver to the people, to write songs, to inspire worship. Heartfelt, joyful obedience to God. A man who knows God intimately and dearly, who has experienced things from and with God that we have never touched. And he says, man, I fell almost off the wagon here. And so then he begins to describe what he did next, what he did with this doubt. His response is found in verse 17. He said, this was oppressive to me in verse 17. He says, until... I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed and completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes. So you arise, O Lord. You will despise them as fantasies. So here's his response. He said, I struggled with this until I entered the sanctuary of God. Until I made the decision to push through the doubt and worship, I I couldn't make any sense of this. So this is pretty interesting to me. He wrestles with doubt. And instead of the, the standard Bible Belt answer, which is shut up and keep singing. He's honest about it. And he goes to God with it. And he wrestles with God. And this is something very important, guys. God is big enough for us to lay our doubt on the table in front of him. Like, he can handle that. He's not some fickle God that that can't handle the weighty things of life. Makes me think of the story in the Gospel of Mark, where the men come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus has been on the, on the mountain in Mark 9 with a few of his closest followers, and they've seen, uh, the glory of God. They've seen, um, Moses and Elijah. It's been this, this crazy experience. God speaks from the cloud, and they walk down the hill, and there they find the other disciples trying to help this man whose son had been, uh, possessed by an evil spirit, had been thrown into fires, it had basically ruined the family's life. They, they would chain the kid down to keep him from hurting himself. And they're trying to cast him out, and they can't. And the father comes to Jesus, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but I've got doubt that there's this mixture of the two. There's faith, and then at the same time, I'm not certain. This is very similar to what Asaph does. He says, God, I I believe, but it's hard right now. I've got some serious doubts. And just like this father, Asaph takes them to Jesus. He takes them to God and he lays them on the table honestly. Then he's reminded of God's promise. God's promise to judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. That that these people who reject God are but a breath. He gives the analogy of a dream. That when God awakens, they disappear and they're gone. That when God chooses to move, that these prideful, arrogant men who mistreat others will dissipate. That in the end, God controls their destinies. And so he trusts in that. He's able to rest in it. And then in verse 21, something happens that Asaph turns to God after having wrestled with him, dealt with his doubt. And we see this repentance from Asaph for not believing and God's gracious hand to restore him. 
In verse 21, he says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it was good to be near God. I've made the sovereign God my refuge. I will tell all of your deeds. So look at this. His first response is to say, God, I was senseless and ignorant like a brute beast before you. He says, I was a moron. I was like an animal. I had no sense. I couldn't comprehend anything. I I was so short-sighted. I didn't see your plan. These are the words of repentance, right? Repentance is not, oh, I was sorry. It's when you look to your sin, how you've offended God, or maybe how you haven't believed Him as you should, and you see it as God does. And you go, man, I've got a different perspective on this. It happens when in, in patterns of sin that we've struggled with, we begin to no longer desire those things. Those things that used to entice us make us nauseous. He says that about his unbelief, about his doubt. He said, I looked at myself in that state and I was, I was dumb. I was like a beast, a buffoon before you. And so he repents of it. He sees it as senseless and ignorant. He says, I was wrong. He says, yet you're always with me. I was acting ignorantly and, and like an animal and you held me by my right hand and you guide me. You didn't turn from me. You stayed present even when I doubted you, even when I questioned your goodness or even your very existence. He says, you stayed with me. You're my guidance for today and my hope for tomorrow. He says, you're my portion forever, which is a way to say you are my hope for eternity. You are all that I need for eternity. He says, God, this is what I now believe to be true about you. You're the only God of heaven and earth. And I love what he says here. He says, who else have I have in heaven but you? And there's nothing in earth that I desire beside you. He says, guys, you're you're it. You are my greatest treasure and joy. You're the only God of heaven and earth. You're the only God who brings joy and hope and peace. And those who are distant from you will be rejected and destroyed. Though this life fades away, my strength is in God. Because you are near to me, I have joy. He says, your nearness is my good. And so he desires to be near to God, to be in his presence, to worship him, and to know him. And so that's his story. The question for me comes to this. How do we move from verse 2 that says, I almost fell. I almost lost my way. I almost gave up hope to that last section where he says, God, your nearness to me is my good. You are my greatest joy. I have no one else in heaven besides you and on earth I desire nothing other than you. How, How do we get from point A to B? Because... That's pretty drastic, isn't it? Like, I don't think that that happened in the amount of time it took Asaph to write this song. I think he wrestled with this for a period of time. 
when he describes himself as in anguish, right? You get the sense that he's analyzed this deal. That he's looked around, he's observed. This is done through careful, lengthy consideration. So he probably spent a period of time looking around, growing disgruntled and embittered with God when he saw the people who who he expected to be punished by God seem to prosper and those that he expected God to bless seem to struggle. And so he, he, he looks at that for a time and then the scripture tells us he felt oppressed in deep anguish. That, that isn't something that, that comes and goes. Anyone who's experienced deep anguish knows that you can get there instantly, but you cannot get out of there instantly. Something can happen in life so devastating, so tragic, that that kind of deep anguish can be initiated instantly. But very seldomly does it disappear overnight. So someone who, who has a job supporting their family, loses the job, the company closes an office, immediately that guy's stomach is in knots. Usually speaking, he doesn't find a great paying job the next day. And even if he does, that that fear that it could all come crumbling down is still present. That anguish doesn't go away. You lose someone you love, that can be tragic and unexpected. And it can happen in an instant. But that healing process isn't something that just goes away. So when he says, look, I, I was in deep anguish in here. We need to recognize that this psalm depicts probably a lengthy period of time of reflection, prayer, struggling, wrestling with God to get from point A of saying, God, I had almost slipped and lost my faith, to point B where he says, your nearness is my good and I desire nothing besides you. And so I want to maybe give some ideas that we find here that are probably useful for that journey because I expect it to take a while. One is he makes a decision to worship. This is significant. He makes a decision to worship. And I want to point this out. He does not desire God at this moment when he begins this journey. And he makes a decision to worship. Now, I want to maybe draw a few lines to clarify this. This isn't duty in the absence of desire. This isn't what this is. This isn't saying, well, you know what? You don't just keep going to church. Just do your duty. That's not what this is. This is a desire for new desires. Wanting your heart to be somewhere it is not. Does that make sense? I have some things that I want to want to do. Let me give you an example. Um, I do the dishes relatively frequently around our house. I do not like doing the dishes. There is not a single ounce of desire in my heart to get home and do the dishes. It's not present. Sorry. I desire for my heart to be there. I want my heart to be shaped and changed by God in such a way that selflessly serving my wife is something I desire. So this isn't duty. This isn't just do the right thing because you know it's the right thing. This is Asaph understanding that the presence of God, that being surrounded by the community of saints, is the only place his heart will be transformed. And so he goes into a place, not because going to temple is what you ought to do. He goes to worship because his desire ultimately is a new desire. And so when we wrestle with our affections for God not being present, how do we think they're going to be stirred up? By watching Fox Sports? I mean, do we expect to watch... I mean, I don't know. You watch the Cowboys and you're a fan. You're going to pray. But 
Other than that, I pray hard every fall. Our affections for God are stirred when we're around people who who tell us the story of what God's done in their lives. Our affections for God are stirred when we read the Scriptures, when it proclaims to us the goodness and greatness of God. Because then the Holy Spirit has ammunition to work change in our lives. See, our tendency when we don't desire God, when we wrestle with doubt, is to retract from those things that will stir our affections and change our hearts. You don't want to go to Bible study. You don't want to go to life group. Because you don't want, honestly, you don't want to tell anybody what you're dealing with. I mean, who wants to be the guy at the table at Life Group going, I'm not sure if I believe in God right now. To be honest, most of us would rather not say that. Even if we're going through it. And so the, the tendency is to step away, and Asaph makes a decision to press in. Not out of some sense of duty or, or or requirement, because he desires a new desire. He also remembers the promise of God. He looks towards the future of what God said he will do. God says these these men are but a breath and their judgment is sure. So he's mindful of, of God's promises of vindicating the righteous, as if in the end there being a day when the righteous are welcomed into the kingdom in the presence of, of Jesus. And he rests in that. I'm convinced that one of the reasons we struggle so much in the Christian life is because our hope of heaven is so small. Like, we we have such a small view of it. And so the prize doesn't seem all that great. I don't think we can elevate our perspective of how wonderful the experience of eternity in the absence of sin and all of the consequences of it in the presence of Jesus, who is our greatest joy eternity. I don't think we can oversell that. I don't think there's a hope that we can pin on heaven that will get let down. Now, we could say some unbiblical things about what will happen in heaven, but in the end, when we arrive, there'll be no regret. No, you know, I wish they did an upgrade here. Heaven is amazing. When they describe it, in the Bible, there's these words that, that are so mind-blowing. Like, in Revelation, we're going to get a picture of heaven where the streets are made of gold. Like, the most valuable thing to us is nothing but gravel there. It's amazing. God is present. Sin is absent. All the death, decay, and destruction that it brings is absent. The experience of creation... Absent sin and decay, absent muscle aches or pains or or crooked noses or cancer or epilepsy or a bad knee or anything else you could imagine that plagues you, plagues your family, gone. Jesus is present. It's amazing. It can't be oversold. And so we we often have this small view of God's promise that limits our ability to, to pursue Him today. We have this picture of heaven where we become these chubby babies. And and I was talking to the youth this week. I said, that that doesn't sell, does it? Like, like how many of you are going to walk through pain and suffering today because one day I'm going to be a fat baby on a cloud? Like, I got a promise that I'm going to be a fat baby on a cloud so I can put up with anything. I'm going to keep trudging because that prize is awesome. No. We buy into this worldly depiction of heaven. It, it inhibits our ability to walk through today with hope and faith. 
So we believe the promise of God. We remind ourselves, if you're wrestling through that, go to the last chapter of Revelation. Go to like Revelation 22 and just read. Start at at chapter 19 and just read and be reminded of God's goodness and His promise and what is to come that we've yet to experience. His future grace that is yet to be poured out on us and rejoice in that and see if that doesn't change your disposition just a touch. Third, and this is a little harder, but this is directly what Asaph did, is repent of your unbelief. You know, I couldn't get through a sermon without saying repent a few times. Repent of your unbelief. Not trusting in God. It's a failure to worship Him as He deserves. When we don't put our hope in Him, when we don't put our trust in Him, that is a failure to give Him the honor in our hearts that He is rightly deserving of. So repent of that. And in that process, look to God to supply faith. One of the things we don't think about is that the strength of our faith, that's a gift from God. Ephesians 2, when describing salvation, says it's not by works that you're saved, it's by faith through grace, which is a gift from God. And when you get into the Greek context, you realize that that neither faith nor grace are singled out as what the gift is, that it's both. It's the whole package. So faith in God is something God supplies as a gift. And so if you're struggling with faith, seek God. Say, God, help me with my unbelief. Just like the man in Mark 9 did to Jesus. Go to him and say, I believe, help my lack of faith. Help my doubt. Give me an extra measure of your grace so that I can trust you. So seek him. Don't don't think you're going to manufacture faith on your own. Pursue God. Because I want to be really honest, these these four things are going to come to play for us all at some point, if they haven't already. This life is fraught with sin and struggle and suffering, and it will at some point cause you to question. We're not asking you to have some unquestioned childlike faith or childish faith. The Bible tells us that a childlike faith is good, but not that a childish one is good. I'm not saying don't question or don't ever wrestle with God. What you find from Asaph, the conclusion of this, this resting in God, is after a period of time of struggle, the core of his faith. And so you may walk through that. You probably will walk through that if you walk with Jesus for a good period of time. And my encouragement to you is to make a decision to worship, to remember the promises of God, to repent of your unbelief, and to ask God to give you faith. Plead with Him.